Hello everyone. Iowa's weather is finally warming up and Des Moines residents are packing the patios downtown for happy hours. While we all appreciate a pint or two of craft beer, what do you know about the growing industry behind it? Who are the people building these breweries and what services are supporting them? This is The Business of Beer, a special expert podcast hosted and produced by the Des Moines Business Record. I'm Kate Hayden, technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship reporter. And I'm Chris Konetsky, publisher and executive editor at the Des Moines Business Record. On April 29th, Chris and I met with five expert panelists at the Iowa Taproom downtown. You'll meet Jeff Bruno Bruning, partner at Full Court Press, Mackenzie Nading, executive director at the Iowa Wholesale Beer Distributors Association, Jay Wilson, minister of Iowa Beer at the Iowa Brewers Guild, John Martin, co-founder and head brewer at Confluence Brewing Company, and R.J. Tercy, founder and CEO at Exile Brewing Company. Thanks for listening. My name is Jay Wilson. I work with the Iowa Brewers Guild. It's the trade organization for all the brewers in the state of the uh, state of Iowa. Uh, we sort of describe it with three P's: promote, protect, and improve Iowa beer. So. To that extent, we do some beer festivals and promotional kinds of things, tastings out and about, uh, protect uh, legislative work, whether that's here in Des Moines or in Washington, D.C. And then finally, the, the third P is buried in the middle of the, the word uh, improve. We, we do some educational work as well. Uh, the largest thing being our IBES conference, which is a, a conference with, oh, I guess you would say, uh, hey, we got three tracks of, of education, uh, technical brewing, um, business and marketing, and legal stuff as it pertains to the industry. So uh, by and large, those three Ps cover us. Uh, my name is Mackenzie Nading. I'm the executive director for the Iowa Wholesale Beer Distributors Association. So I can echo, I think, a lot of what Jay said, except we are in the industry of moving beer. So I represent all of the beer wholesalers in the state. Um, we don't manufacture, but, um, you know, wholesale, whether it's uh, on-premise or off-premise um, for consumption. Uh, we have 17 ownership groups in the state uh, currently um, with just about, uh, I think, close to 75 warehouses. Um, and so we've got a pretty large presence. Um, my job specifically, um, I do advocacy work, um, do public policy work, so we spend a lot of time up at the Capitol, um, and we also do um, advocacy at the federal level as well. We have a national organization that we are an affiliate of um, and do a lot of work all across the country with, with other states working to uh, just uh, support the wholesale tier, that middle tier um, of, of the three-tier system. Um, we also do a lot of work for our members, just um, getting them information, helping with trade practice and regulation, making sure everyone's following the rules, um, and just getting them any information that they need from me. So. I'm RJ Tersey. I'm the owner and founder at Exile Brewing Company. And being in that position, you do a lot of different things. So whether it be on the production side, sales and marketing side, financial side, whatever needs to get done that nobody else is going to be doing is generally falling into my lap. So catching those things and then just working on overall vision for the company and, and leadership. My name is John Martin. I'm with Confluence Brewing Company, uh, co-founder, president, head brewer, and uh, sort of like RJ said, whatever falls in the gaps, the janitor some days. So, um, yeah, just happy to be part of the Iowa craft beer scene. And uh, I think what makes us a little unique is that we self-distribute. So, I am Jeff Bruning, and I am with Full Court Press. I guess I started off my career and continue on to a Point as a professional beer drinker, uh, making sure uh, what we're putting on tap is uh, what our guests may want or like or, or need uh, sometimes. Um, I kind of flutter around all three tiers, uh, but only am involved with the middle one. Um, but I have really good, strong ties to the distributorships. Um, I've spent a lot of time with producers uh, like John and RJ and other brewers in the state. I uh, spend time with uh, our local wholesalers, and of course, uh, I at the end product, um, I kind of work on quality, and I have a deep interest in, uh, I'm an Iowa native, and I have a deep interest in uh, the success of all of our businesses, our breweries, and the quality of what they're putting out and how they're going about it. So, uh, I guess sort of like it or not, sometimes maybe not, uh, I get involved, um, but uh, I, I have the most sincere uh 
uh, hopes for everyone in the industry to uh, make Iowa a better place. Um, so that's what I have to say. All right. Well, excellent. Um, I just want to start out and kind of get a pulse of how things are going as someone who just enjoys what you guys make but doesn't really know a lot about the industry. So if we were going to do the scale of 1 to 10, 1 just little toddler steps and 10 a very strong thriving industry, where do you guys think Iowa's craft brewing scene falls? So I guess if we're looking at it in a national context where you have really large breweries and almost all the surrounding states, like in Missouri, Minnesota, Illinois, Wisconsin especially, Iowa is definitely behind them in terms of you know people drinking craft, overall craft volume being produced. So in that context, maybe five, right around four and a half or five. But in the last five to 10 years, I think it's really, really come a long way. Uh, so it still is, you know, not where it could be, but it, it's grown quite a bit, in my opinion. Sorry. I, uh, I think we're, because of the laws, the change in the laws um, in 2010, I believe, uh, we went from being able to produce uh, our brewers and also wholesalers being able to bring in beers uh, that were th- uh, 6.5 ABV, 6.25 ABW, which is uh, alcohol by volume and alcohol by weight. It just depends on how you do it. Some people go other ways. Most consumers know the by, by volume. They switched that up to 15% ABV, which uh, really helped in a lot of fashions. It it opened up the doors for our brewers to, to try and do different, different things. Some styles weren't even available until that happened. Uh, it opened up wholesalers uh, to do that too. So in the whole scheme of things, craft beer industry started with, uh, some will say, uh, with Fritz Maytag, Iowa native in Anchor, in Anchor Brewing in 1965. He took over an 1896 brewery and kept it alive. Um, you know, in some ways, we're a little behind Millstream was 1985, 1985. So we have been in. The, that was one of the. I think they were one of 100 breweries in the state in the nation at the time, or right in there. Um, but our lag time between that and 2010, other states have really gotten far ahead. So I would say, with like with RJ, it is, it is more of in that, at, you know, adolescent stage at best. Um, we're having some growing pains and and other things right now. I'll just uh, jump in from kind of looking at a warehouse perspective. Um, I think something that's indicative of the growth that our um, industry has seen in carrying these kind of products, we have many of our beer distributors now who have a craft team, um, or they have people on staff that are um, specialized to do the craft um, accounts. They are the ones that are doing the um, management of, you know, cleaning the lines and marketing and, and going out and trying to find other um, other product to put on um, on the shelves and, and in the warehouse, whether that's Iowa or other craft products from out of the state too. And that's something that just wasn't around, you know, five or six years ago. Um, so not trying to speak to, you know, the production side, but just what the consumers are looking for. Our industry has definitely evolved because it is a more popular um, uh kind of beer, I guess, to have, or a popular, uh, yeah, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not subject, thank you, category, category of beer to have. Um, so we've evolved just to adapt to those standards. So I think that that's at least something positive in the conversation all around. Um, you know, we're looking to specialize more because that's what consumers are looking for. So. I would agree with RJ that we've made a lot of strides over the last few years, but nationally we're, we're definitely behind. But there's also a lot of potential there, which I really look forward to. Nationwide, the share is something like 12, 13% craft beer versus, what's that? Probably like eight or nine. Eight or nine craft craft beer, and what's produced in the state of Iowa is probably like 2% or something like that. I mean, it's like, so it's growing. Uh, in 2010, we had like 22 breweries or something like that at that time. We did an economic impact study for craft beer in 2000 was using 2014 numbers uh, that came out in 2015, um, and we had, uh, I think, 41,000 barrels of production at that point. Um, the 2018 numbers just came out, 
120, just shy of 121,000 barrels of beer Iowa produced last year. So a big growth in that 2010 mark is, is the big uh, catalyst. If you look at a timeline of the brewery openings, there's a big jump in 12, 13, 14. That, that, that graph starts to skew upward. I want, you all mentioned you know, maybe lagging behind on the national scale, and I'm just kind of curious what maybe factors would have led to that um, and, and what you've seen that, that leads to us maybe lagging behind. I think being the middle of the country, we're always a little slow to the party, you know, but um, there's also population. You know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Missouri all have way larger populations than Iowa. So I think it's being supported by um, that population center. There's a lot of rural areas, so um, not as many densely populated cities. Um, I think that's it's just a little slower to, to kind of work its way through the rural areas. I think we're also an older state, uh, and older people don't tend to drink less beer. Um, you know, places like Colorado and California, Oregon, uh, Michigan, they have a, a draw, a natural draw to some folks, uh, younger folks. And um, just the way the population is, it's easier to, uh, to gain more craft uh, beer drinkers. And also, I, I, I can't speak to why, but I just, it's more, it's more of how, you know, when you can't come to the when you can't come to the state because half your portfolio can't come to the state to you know 2010, um, you don't really want to come. But now it, there was a time there in the last five years where a lot of craft breweries were talking about, you know, talking about coming to the state of Iowa because they hadn't. You'd see maps where they'd color in all the way around. I remember looking at Bell's when the El Bay shop opened, and Iowa was a blank spot in the middle. I took it to the craft. I took it to GABF to show some people and say, "Hey, man, how can we get it?" It's way before I understood what I was doing. But why can't? Why aren't you coming to our state? But I just think it's it. It comes down to dollars, and if it's worth the time uh, for for everyone to get in. And now with the upswing in popularity and and uh, consumption, we're seeing we're seeing the numbers climb, climbing quite quickly now that uh, we can uh, make these beers and sell them. John mentioned all the potential that was involved in having that room to grow. And I think, um, I think one thing that's worth pointing out is that even in Iowa, finally, we're getting to the spot where, you know, we want locally roasted coffee beans. We want uh, to know the person that made our beer. We want to, you know, buy our food and our vegetables at the, at the farmer's market and that kind of thing. And I think that's pretty helpful. I'm, I guess, and I'll ask uh, Mackenzie a question, perhaps if she sees the same, same kind of thing, but I think that people are so interested now in having a local product that that's very helpful. And so that's going to help Iowa finally get to, to move up the chain. Um, but I, in what I kind of see, it seems to me that it's more difficult. Like when I moved back to Iowa, I'm originally from Iowa, took a walk about, came back about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, there was a lot of out-of-state craft beers available, so I could still get a milk stout if I wanted one, and I could find a decent IPA, that sort of thing. Um, and there weren't quite so many locals. Nowadays, I don't think a brewery from California or Colorado or Michigan can just count on sending beer to Iowa and have it fly off the shelves naturally. I think people are going to, if there's a good Des Moines IPA from Confluence, then I'm going to drink that first. If, there, if I want a sour beer and I want uh, a beatnik from Exile, then I'll buy that beer first because there's a good locally made beer. And so I wonder if... Uh, Mackenzie's sense is also that it's harder to sell beer from further home and what you guys see in that regard. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's way harder to be from California in Iowa now and it used to be easier. Yeah, um, I'm not going to try to sp uh, speak specifically on any kind of sales numbers or anything, but I know just talking to, to my guys and when they talk to you know their on-premise guys that are out in the field every day, when you consider bringing on a portfolio into a large warehouse, you want it to sell. And so there's a lot of conversation back and forth with the manufacturer about, you know, what is your brand? What are you selling? How are you going to, you know, make this beer um, something that consumers are looking for? And absolutely, I think in probably at least the last 10 years, what consumers are looking for is exactly who made your beer. If you can walk down the street and point to, you know, John, who you know is the one that's making it, that matters. And that, you know, matters to our, you know, owners too, so they can get good product in there. Um, so absolutely, I think that's a really big trend. Um, of course, there are a lot of 
of big national, um, national breweries, but you know, ones that have a national reach that are still very prominent. But it's really cool to walk into, I mean, you hear consumers walk into places all the time and say, what do you have on tap that's from the state? I know our guys and a lot of their marketing teams, they'll actually put a tag on the tap that says local beer, you know, and, and make sure that that's visible because that matters. And indicative of the pull in that, I mean, we were sitting here at the Iowa Tap Room. This place probably wouldn't exist if 2010 didn't happen. That law didn't change. And I mean, people have pulled you. Had, you did this because you had to. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We, we saw Well, we had a little event called Thanks, the Little though, Giant Bruno. Beer Summit. And we, we had some real success with that. And I said, I, after three years, I'm like, this could be something. And, um, and to be quite honest, I think we opened three years ago in March. But uh, when we opened, I think if we would open six months earlier, it might have been difficult because we opened up with 120 handles. Uh, and it was like opening up the bait shop. We had enough to fill the handles, but we really weren't putting the best foot forward. And, and I think part of, you know, like I say, like it or not, we get involved. We kind of, we want to see quality products. We want to see, we, we want to, when somebody puts an IPA on, I want it them to know what an IPA tastes like and, and if there's problems with it we to the benefit of the brewer I feel we pull it off and, and have conversations we have those less and less um, and and things are going really great but yeah there even after 2010 I'm terrible with my dates but I know we're in 2019 I think 2016 is when we opened up but I tell you 2015 I don't think we could have pulled it off I just don't think well 120 we could have done maybe 40 but it's not as dramatic to put 40 handles on a big uh, silo, you know. So, uh, and we since gone down to 99, 99 counties and just uh, space, we ran into space issues. But uh, it, we wouldn't have been able to open. We wouldn't have been able to open the bait shop. We barely, the same thing happened, you know, when we weren't, things weren't being made. We're doing all underproof, filling 105 handles, and we weren't getting out of state. But I would throw out the question that I'm sure, I know there's only one real, there's only one brewery that really does a lot of business outside of our state, and that's Toppin' Goliath. Um, but I would say that being here in Central Iowa, I think John and RJ could attest to the fact that you go out to even Eastern Iowa, you go out to the Quad Cities, and it's like, you know, your big deal in Des Moines. You guys both are the two biggest breweries in the Central Iowa, two biggest breweries in the state. And you go out there, and it's not like you go, we made some beer. You know, you should put it on. They're like, oh, that's awesome. You guys decided to come out here. You know what I mean? It's yeah, tough. Yeah. It's, and that's just the other side of our state. So, Your guys' stuff is not the only example of businesses or tap rooms or whatever opening. Um, but beyond, like, retail opportunities, there's uh, the hop industry is slowly percolating along. There are at least two people I know that are working to bring um, malting facilities to the state. Um, there are all sorts of auxiliary industries that are popping up. And if we didn't have some success in the, these last few years, then a lot of that stuff wouldn't really be happening. It just wouldn't make business sense. I want to speak to a point that you just made there. When you when you opened the Iowa Tap Room, do you think you were responding to a demand for those certain types of beers or do you think you were really trying to introduce Iowans to those types of beers and those types of well if you're listening to uh this and you're from Iowa and you know the bait shop um if you're standing at at the fence line of our patio that's where we're collecting uh the money for the little giant beer summit that line went all the way if it if it could it would have went all the way to the to the uh, science center. It was a long line. We did the very first time we ever did it. Uh, and we've had wide success ever since. Uh, people just like it. I would say that maybe the Iowa Taproom opening maybe took a little luster off that. But uh, no, there was, a, there was a demand for it. People wanted to drink it. And I, I get my hair cut by Rick at the Roosevelt Barbershop. He's the owner. And I love doing that. I like going and talking to John. I have in his brewery, I like going over to talk to RJ in his brewery, um, and and I just like doing that. I don't really like going to. I, I don't want to pick on any. Uh, I don't go, like if Amazon were a brick and mortar. I don't really like to go to Amazon because Jeff Bezos and I are really good friends. It's just not possible. So it's a lot nicer to go to local on everything I do, and I do that when we open our businesses. I work with local as much as possible. Um, I want to work with local 
um, landlords and local producers and everything I can do. Iowa Tap Room is more than just the beer that we do. It is everything in the community we try to be a part of. So, so yeah, I think that the, the demand was definitely there. And I know if we wouldn't have done it, somebody else would. And that was why we did. That's why <laughs> sure. we made it. We didn't made an announcement, I think, a year and a half before we opened because I wanted to make sure anyone that even gave a thought to it wasn't going to do it anymore. <laughs> sure, sure. So Jay kind of took some of my talking points here with some of the stats. But that's okay. You beat me to it, and that's your job. Um, one of the things that uh, – your study had found that Iowa has four breweries per 100,000 adults age 21 plus. I mean, to me, that seems like a lot in the state. I'm, I'm not sure where you, where you guys sit on that, but um, how are, are people measuring growth in breweries in, in Iowa? Are, are people keeping track of that? And I guess, what do you think could be done to keep a closer eye on whether or not all these breweries popping up are, are succeeding and um, supported? Well, we definitely track that. We're around 93 or 94 breweries in the state right now. Um, I don't think, like, the number of breweries is quite as big a deal. Like, if, a, if somebody closes, and you'll have closures. You're having closures in ginormously fabulous beer places like Portland, you know, some pretty notable breweries have closed somewhat recently and there were a handful in quick succession um, I think that you've sort of got to have your crap together uh, these days you can't just open a brewery have it be wildly successful you've got to have really good beer you've got to have your branding stuff sorted out you've got to have good well-trained staff and every you've got to have every everything in order I don't think that um, today it's the market's quite as forgiving as it was maybe five or ten years ago, some minor error that you made five years ago could possibly be fatal today, like honestly. And a couple of Portland situations, perhaps, you know, that's what's happened. So we've, anytime somebody closes, people are like, oh, gee, are we saturated? Is there too many breweries in Iowa? And I'm like, no, not necessarily. I mean, in uh, the apex of Iowa brewery count was like 149 in the 1800s. And at that time, there were like... 3 million people. I've forgotten the numbers now, but I mean, we're, uh, we're, at, we're at 3 million now. We were at like a million or something at that point. That's what it was. Yeah. So we're around 3 million people now and only, only a measly 94. I don't care about the number 94 so much as it just kind of depends. RJ's got a 30 barrel system, pretty wide reach, lots of fermentation space, toppling glass, hundred barrel system nowadays, a lot wider reach, you know, um, but there are other people that are a one-barrel or two-barrel or three-barrel system, a barrel being 31 gallons, trying not to be uh, too jargony there. Um, but those guys are really teeny tiny, and that's all, like, just like pre-prohibition, any town of eight or 10,000 probably had a, a small brewery that fueled its local population. And then back at those days, until refrigeration came along and you could actually send uh, beer greater distances from St. Louis to Texas or New Mexico or wherever, um, you know, it was you were fueling your local population. So the main difference between now and then is we've got more people, fewer breweries. We do have refrigerated uh, uh, transportation, and so that makes it easier to send things out further. But it, So it's complicated, but I don't think it's a big deal to have 94 it's just how big are they, where are they located. Some small person in a, a small brewery in a small community is probably fairly content, whereas RJ probably wants to take over the world, and that's beautiful. Good. <laughs> Best of luck, RJ. That's, I, I would echo that everything uh, Jay just said, but I would just say that I, I looked it up while he was talking, but I knew that Vermont's the highest, and it's nearly, uh, it's nearly three times as big as us. It's 11.5 11, uh, 11 breweries per 100,000. So, and they, they are in their own way a very remote state. Um, and you don't hear a lot about Vermont? No, well, we, uh, if you're a nerd, you know that Vermont's putting out some pretty cool stuff. But if you're, if you're just an average beer drinker, by the way, uh, my stat before the, nine, the 8 or 9% is more um, is what it is national, like drinkers of craft beer, of the percentage of beer being made. Um, I know that that's gone up some, I, and then this Mount Produce is something I'm not always paying attention to. But uh, there's a lot of people that don't that drink beer that don't drink craft, and to me, maybe that's the biggest window into all this. I come from Carroll, Iowa, 
And Carroll has a population of twenty thousand, uh, ten thousand, excuse me. Um, the Budweiser distributorship that that carries five counties there uh, has has uh, one twelfth of the Bush Light sales in Iowa. Bush Light's the biggest selling beer in Iowa. They consume, I think it's one hundred and seventy-one thousand cases of Bush Light in Carroll. And we've talked about this before. If you could get them to drink every other time an exile or a confluence, just a small percentage of those people would would put every brewery in the state to capacity. So th there's there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, and so that's that's why I feel like, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. When they start going out of business is when you know there maybe was too much or at least too much for them. One of the topics that you brought up was the quality of the beer in Iowa. And I'm just curious... Um, uh, from Confluence and Exile, even from the time you guys started to now, how, how much more sophisticated have you guys gotten with what your beer making is like? And then on, on top of that, does that make it harder for somebody new to try to break into the industry if um, it, if maybe the, the quality standard has to be a little bit higher than, than maybe what it needed to be when, it, when everybody first started popping open breweries? Uh, yeah, I, I would say our quality has definitely gone up since we started, um, partly process equipment. We bought a centrifuge that, you know, we weren't, like, filtering any beers when we started. And so the, I didn't really want to have a filter. I, I wanted a centrifuge. And that's helped our quality, um, shelf stability, things like that. Um, also just testing equipment so that you know you get feedback on dissolved oxygen and things that can affect your beer. Um, doing quality checks, having a lab. You know, ours is, is pretty modest, but we do um, yeast counting and do work on microbiological stuff to make sure our beer is clean. So there's just, you know, I think that's that type of stuff. Um, you can open with it if you have the budget, if you have the means. Um, there's also, you know, if your beer gets drank quickly enough, it doesn't really matter. If it stays cold, it doesn't really matter. So um, you make good beer, that's great. Um, you can make tiny amounts of great beer or you can make tiny amounts of bad beer. Um, it's just, you know, having good beer is one thing, but also, you know, having a good process is, is another good thing. And so I, I don't think it limits people from entering the industry, but at the same time, um, they, they need to go into it knowing that, hey, I better start off with, with some good stuff or no one's going to come back. And I see a lot of breweries opening. I'm just super impressed with what they're doing. It's crazy. Like, they, they come to the game ready to play. Yeah, I would say that, that our quality has gone up significantly, really, even in just the last 18 months. Like, it's always been a focus for us to try and improve our quality. It's one of our core values is, is quality first. But even, even in the last 18 months, we started getting a lot more disciplined on sensory analysis and sensory evaluation on a, on a consistent basis. And then tying that back to processes to see how it how it affected our beer and so I think I think that's helped out a lot uh, again you know we're, we are always investing in in instrumentation equipment just like what John said to to improve the quality of the beer whether that's process equipment or literally just you know measuring devices that we use in the lab to try and get a better handle on on what's going on with the beer but uh, the you know opening up you can create a sensory program at your brewery if you just put the time and the effort into it. It really doesn't cost much. It costs you time and then, you know, just, yeah, really, it's just time and effort on that type of stuff. So you can do that opening up as a new brewery with, you know, not very sophisticated equipment. And if you just keep your, keep your reach small, you can always know how your beer is doing, what, what your beer is doing. So, I really don't think that, you know, just because other people are making higher quality beer, it's a barrier to entry. Uh, it raises the bar for sure. And maybe maybe you won't be around for as long as you would have with all the other uh, quality options around. But I don't know that it's necessarily a barrier to entry. Uh, to the barrier to entry thing, I mean, I could go online right now, buy a one-barrel system and have in, within two weeks, you know, UPS can drop me off a system that's large enough technically to start a brewery i got a little bit of paperwork to do and some licensing issues but but like i can go online and order something and have it delivered by ups i mean 
So that means it's really low, you know, barrier to entry. But if you want to stick around, then you've got to have your quality control processes in place. So it's great that these guys and others have labs these days. That's a beautiful thing. I totally encourage that. Um, one thing that the Brewers Guild has been trying to do to support that. One, I mentioned uh, the, the conference that we do, but we've also started to do sensory, uh, sensory programming, um, off-flavor education. Um, so you know where, you know, if you taste this, that's bad. If you taste this, that's bad. If you taste this, that's bad. Where'd that come from? How do I avoid that? Um, so trying to do some educational stuff for our membership. Um, and then we've, all, we've also started to do some uh, uh, line cleaning uh, seminars as well, just to make sure John can work his tail off to have really excellent beer. And as soon as it ships out uh, his warehouse door, then it's out of his hands. And so if it's not stored cold, like he mentioned, um, if time becomes an issue and it sits around somewhere for a long time, that's, that could be problematic. Uh, but if it goes to a bar that doesn't do a really good job of cleaning the lines and it's, his really delicious beer goes through dirty, you know, filthy, dirty lines, then it's going to taste sour, dirty, or infected. Hey, come on. In, in the state of Iowa, the distributor is responsible for cleaning lines. It's Are you trying to pick owner. a fight over no, here? No, I'm it's not. But, no. but it's a thing. <laughs> I was going to say. But, like, but it's a thing that isn't perfectly us. done. Yeah. And it's not perfectly done by every brewery. That's true. I will be honest. I've That's tasted. True. I've been to breweries and tasted poor beer at a brewery. And it was really like a line cleaning incident. Sure. You know? So, yeah. There's no, it's all a good point. I just wanted to clarify that. Sure, sure. I get it. Now I'm going to hand the, the microphone <laughs> to Mackenzie. Uh, no, I was just going to jump in when talking about, you know, quality. Um, and that's, uh, as a, a wholesaler, that's one of your main focuses, too, even though we don't make the beer. But there is a whole other world that beer enters into as soon as it's put into a bottle and into a keg. And manufacturers bestow a lot of trust into wholesalers when they are giving them that product to make sure that when it does get to the line or when it gets to a shelf, that it is treated in every way that it needs to so that the consumer has a positive experience. And we don't take that lightly with any of the product that we have. Um, so yeah, I was just going to just put that out there. That's probably a part of this process that a lot of consumers and just anyone who enjoys beer doesn't know about. Um, John is probably more intricately you know, involved in it, obviously, because you guys do distribution of not only your own beer, but other beers. Um, but that's you know part of the staff of, of a wholesaler. You know, When you drop that keg off, you don't just put it in a room. You, know, you go in, you clean the line, you hook it up, you you get it going every time you go to um, a store and you know you're rotating exile you're checking the close to date you know you got to pull that beer off once it gets close to that expiration date for safety and for you know quality of that product and so we take that seriously we know the manufacturers take that seriously and it just makes sure that that product is the best it can be once it gets to consumers just to add to that from a previous sort of retail moment of my life that doesn't happen as perfectly as it should. I think it's better in larger cities where, you know, um, there's, I don't know if it's a better demand for quality, but I think the hinterlands are a little bit neglected in that regard. You know, I ran a restaurant for a couple of years in a rural location, and it was like pulling teeth to get those knuckleheads to come over and clean those lines. And because I'm an absurd beer nerd, I clean the damn lines myself Good job, Jay. I swear to God, in two years, if they came two times, oh, my you know, goodness. and I had to beg them. I did it myself, so it was no, fine. That's good. But not every retailer it. understands that. Well, we clean our lines at the Bay Shop and High I know Life you're just not for the that, only one. that same reason because everyone is supposed to, not everyone does, uh, or maybe not everyone does to our satisfaction. Or, you know, when we change a beer from one thing to the next, if I put an IPA on after an IPA, that's fine. But if I put a sour beer on and I'm going to put an IPA on or a flavored something or other, you gotta you got to clean the lines or you're just going to taste what was on it before. So and, and also just cleaning the lines in general is a thing that should be done every two weeks. So Yeah, I was in Colorado just a few weeks ago and we went to a brewery and they had just kicked a, a smoked beer and they put an IPA on after it and the IPA did not taste like an IPA. <laughs> like, I'm not like a real jerk when it comes to like what's set in front of you. I, I don't make a big stink about it. I just like don't go back to that place again. I'm not that, I'm not that customer, I guess. But I, I should be more vocal. But we sent that beer back. It was, it was a smoke bomb. And that was at a brewery in Colorado, which is a great beer state. But I want to, I want us to kind of think about um, who do you see as leaders representing Iowa in the national industry. Who, I mean, Toppling Goliath is obviously a name that gets brought up. Um, 
who else is out there and, and why are these breweries um, earning so much recognition for Iowa? It's just different reasons why you get not noticed. Um, Tommy Goliath did a great job of, uh, we kicked off, ba I'll just skip back. Uh, we did Bacon Fest at the Bait Shop High Life when we first started off and not hardly anyone could get in. So everyone got all excited and they couldn't get in. Now everyone can get it. And I think opinions have changed to a point. I'm not saying that it's a bad festival or that Brooks Reynolds doesn't know what he's doing. I'm just saying it's changed the way it is. Well, some of the beers at TG, Top and Goliath, are kind of like the early days of Bacon Fest. So it was hard to get into. It's hard to get those. It's hard to find those. And scarcity brought excitement. And not to say that they aren't really good, because they are. But there's just a psychological thing that you get from that. And so I just so happened looking at the other like last night, top 50 beers on Rate Beer in America and Topping Goliath is listed like three or four times. Um, and, and they still are. Uh, but you look at how many times they've been checked in comparatively to some of them, they haven't been checked in as much. But back to the earlier conversation, when, when it's really kind of hard even to get your name recognized on the eastern side of the state when you're in central Iowa, uh, it, national recognition is a little bit, it's, I don't even know if it's some, a desirous thing. It's nice to be recognized, of course. Uh, Lake Time was just no, uh, noticed as the fastest-growing brewery in America. But you have to look at the stats, and, and it's mostly because Confluence got involved. <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, but when you start small and you, and you grow big quick, and even if it's a small number to a bigger number, the percentages are there. And, and I'm not saying there's anything bad about being recognized because uh, we get recognized a lot. I'm just saying that I don't know if, and I'm speaking for them a little bit, but I don't know if uh, RJ and John go in to work every day to make sure they're recognized nationally. I think they're more, more important to them than it is for me that our customers recognize we do a good job and that they want to come back to us and then we kind of work from there. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and specifically, because you're both distributing here in Iowa only? Is that right. correct? We're right. Only yeah. yeah, we're only Iowa as well. Great. And Toppling Goliath is one of the only breweries in Iowa that's going outside? A, I think there's a few that are especially on the board. A few that are especially on the borders uh, we'll, we'll uh, skip into Keg Creek, I know, in the western side of the state. And I'm, I'm not positive, I'm certain any brewery that's near the Mississippi River is distributing into Illinois. But, uh, and Peachtree, I think, was out in seven. Um, uh, Big River was out in a few for a while. I know Millstream is in quite a few spots, yeah, especially up in up north North Wisconsin. Westo's got South Dakota, but it's kind of where they're at. They're you know they're Millstream's the bad time. Bit, yeah. 18, 1985, they've had been around. So yeah, it's just a surprise. You look at you go to Happy Gnome, and there's Millstream on draft up there. But as far as that goes, though, you're sending stuff way out there and hoping that it does well. I doubt if I doubt if even Topping Goliath has a rep in all 15 states. You know what I mean? The beer's kind of speaking for themselves. So that's that's scary, but good if you can get the money, I guess. But I, but there's some there's a lot of considerations you have to think about before you start moving out of your area of safety or comfort, I should say. Yeah, we're we're only distributed in the state of Iowa, so honestly, we're more concerned with you know making sure that we're recognized by by our fans in Iowa. At the national level, yes, we're entering our beers in national competitions. You know, the Great American Beer Festival, the World Beer Cup. Um, so anytime you get a recognition there, that's awesome. But it doesn't mean that people from other states are going to be drinking our beer because we're still only in the state of Iowa. But I think it's cool because hopefully that gives Iowans more pride in the products that are being produced here in Iowa and the quality of the product here in Iowa. And so, yeah, I mean, we definitely want to be winning those awards on national levels but not because it's like oh hey well now we can go into these other states because we have we have more recognition it's just no that's cool because we're from Iowa and and we're making products that have you know the top top level of quality I'm glad that RJ mentioned the awards as an opportunity so you guys have a gold medal under your belt there are a couple of other breweries in the state that have won some awards in the last few years so that's another way to gain so you've got scarcity you've got you know, large competition awards, and then all the other thing that you can do to uh, get recognition is to throw cake in your mash tun or yeah. uh, 
high or lactose and everything, cinnamon rolls. Yeah, yeah. Whether that's right or wrong, I won't comment. Well, actually, that, that brings up something I always talk about with some, some of the guys too, which is at, at some point, you, <laughs> there's so many different combinations of beers you can do, but and there's been such an explosion in the one-off type beers. People going to get bored with the different types of beers at some point. I mean, is there truly enough <laughs> cake beers that you can do that uh, keep people interested? I would say at this point, Fonzie has jumped the sharks. Uh, uh, I think you can keep doing it. I think it makes it fun and interesting. I, I don't think you can build a business model on it. I, I truly believe the future of beer is the past. Um, the factory beers uh, that are global um, make beer by the 12-pack, and uh, they brew them at a low ABV, a low IBU, um, which means IBU means uh, international bittering units. Uh, it means it's lower in bitterness. Uh, so you can, I mean, you can drink several of those beers, uh, unlike we just had a beer called El Bake Shop made with a barn town and it had cinnamon rolls in it and it is good but i don't see myself like hanging out by the pool drinking 10 of those you know <laughs> it's just fun to drink every now and again but to drink every now and again um brings me to a point i want to make and i want to make sure that i make it um and it kind of goes along with all this stuff it's something I've been saying, uh, my partner brought it up to me, and, and I think it's a good one, and it's, I'll make it real quick. The Gatlin brothers were a band in the 70s. They're a country band that went kind of crossover pop. A lot of them did. Uh, they had a lot of success. Um, they're still around, uh, they, but they're kind of marginal. They play at county fairs and all those things, but they're still playing. And Larry Gatlin, the founder, uh, uh, was asked... Um, he had he, he was asked questions, and they said, you know, my brothers were alcoholics. I got addicted to cocaine, and, and um, they got towards the end of the interview, and this is the point I want to make. They asked him, what, what would you do now that you, what would you, if you know now what you know, what would you have changed? And he said, the first thing, I would have never taken cocaine. It's a horrible drug. I wish I would have never done it. But the second one that's the one I, I think about almost every day is that he wished somebody would have told him that the music business was two words. Because they had the music thing down, but the business part, they had no idea. They're, they got Billy Joel. They got you know Drew Brees. I think recently found out he got sixty million dollars taken away from him. He's a quarterback. You know, a Super Bowl winning quarterback. You can be good at the things you're good at, but if you're not good at business, I think the one barrel brewery or the hundred barrel brewery can go out of business really quickly. Um, the quality has to be there, but that should be a given. Um, but the how to run a business is really what is important in all this and, and doing it right and getting out there. Are, are you seeing... And, and I guess that, that to point of, sorry, to the point of that is, is just to have all these really exotic beers isn't really running a business. It's more like showing what you can do technically as a brewer, which is great, and I love them, I drink them. But to brew a really quality Hellas or a hard-to-make beer that you can consume all the time as a regular beer. I think that's where the trends are heading. I guess it was like, what the heck was I talking about? But to bring it all the way back, it, but the business, you have to have a business sense in mind, not, I mean, they are artists, they are, art, it's artisanal, but at the end of the day, um, there's a business involved and the business needs to make money to survive. And, and if not, it's a hobby or, or somebody's part-time job. Do you, do you sense that the, um that most breweries in Iowa are figuring out the business angle. Uh, you know, it's just one thing we we see the growth of the breweries. I'm just curious financially how um, the industry is is feeling. And maybe RJ and, and and you guys could talk a little bit about what you're seeing too. I'll just jump in from my perspective quick and then leave it to the the experts on the actual making side. But I would say that simply because our warehouses are seeing a more robust portfolio of craft products is an indicator that people are figuring it out. And I say that because um, we care about smart business models when, when we bring products in. Um, the beer needs to sell. You know, we can do a lot, but the beer itself needs to have branding. It needs to be good. It needs to have a reputation. And so I think the fact that, we're, you know, wholesalers are more comfortable bringing in a more robust portfolio does speak to the fact that a lot of them are, you know, doing really well in branding and, and making, you know, making a name for themselves. Yeah, I guess, you know, just to, to Bruno's point, 
it, that is 100% true. And so there's a constant battle that I'm sure goes on at just about every brewery that, that is seeing some success between the people in the finance department, the people in the sales and marketing department, and then the people in the production department, whether it's, you know, salespeople wanting different packages to compete on the shelf or, you know, this different brand to get out there, the production guys wanting to make whatever beer that they've thought of, and then the people on the financial side of things being like, well, this is where, you know, we have our best profit per gallon or profit per barrel, whatever you want to say. So just kind of trying to toe all three of those lines and, and walk down that path where, where all those things intersect is really, you know, the balance that, that we're trying to strike. I think another interesting point on the business front is um, it's easy to get really excited about a tiny new Nanos brewery that's putting out, you know, uh, really cool New England IPAs or, you know, funky Imperial Stouts with, you know, cinnamon rolls or whatever. Like, it's pretty easy to get excited. Those are the flashy, sexy new things on the block. I feel um, it's interesting to look at people that have been around for 20, 25, 30 years and see those guys navigate just like staying relevant in this new crazy, you know, at the time when you guys started El Bait Shop, you know, if I could get a handle in there, maybe I, maybe my porter was always on, stat and I, uh, on tap and I could count on that, but now it's this rotation nation thing. And how does that old brewery stay relevant? I think that's a real business challenge that some people that have been around there are probably good at business, but are like, holy smokes, everything's different now. So that's to, a challenge. To that point, since March 5th, we put on 180 new beers <laughs> at the bait shop. Just at the bait shop? Just at the bait shop. <laughs> Two days away from May. How many of those are Iowa beers? Uh, of our, you know, since Iowa Taproom came on board, um, it, it's it's gone down a little, but not a ton. I think we're still roughly 60, 60, 80 of our 262 <laughs> handles. Uh, but uh, we'll always carry an Iowa beer. I think the uh, beer we've had since the day we opened at Albay Shop is Shilbrow from Millstream, and if it sells, it sells. Keg Creek's uh, Breakdown Brown has. Uh, we have several of Confluences and of Exiles beers on. Uh, but mostly the ones that do the best are, are Ruthie and Hannah and, and Confluences IPA and, and Capital Gold. So we've had those on almost consistently since the day they were offered to us. So we, we push really hard. I, people want Iowa beer. Um, we're trying to be a lot of different things to a lot of different people, so we try to do a lot of different things, and that's why I have 175 different beers. So, so business-wise, um, how are breweries handling the changes in the industry right now? Um, a lot of businesses that the business record talks about um, – they're worried about the labor market. Is anything like that affecting craft brewing in Iowa? Where where do you guys feel it falls? Um, I guess our labor force has stayed pretty consistent the last couple of years. I mean, we've grown to 30-plus employees in the summer, maybe 35 or so. Um, just looked a month or so ago, and it was we we're at 30, and 20 of those are full-time, which is pretty awesome, I think. We're doing our part to support the community and, um, you know, just the whole business side. I think a lot of the people that work at Confluence, especially, um, have come to us and said, hey, I want to be part of this, which it's like, all right, you know, we'll try to find a spot. Hopefully, you know, they're they're worth their weight, and um, most of them are. So, you know, we, we don't have a lot of turnover other than um, people that are part-time that want a behind-the-bar job for a while. You know, maybe they have a another full-time job, but... Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. So he mentioned, you know, behind the bar is where you might have some turnover. On the, we have a, a brew pub down at Exile as well as our production facility. But we, it kind of ebbs and flows as far as the labor market goes for us. Sometimes we'll be really, really solid for a long period of time down at the pub. And then all of a sudden you'll have four or five people leave because they're graduating from college or they're, they're moving or whatever it is. Uh, so you go through those times and then, you know, in the summer, we're a lot busier. We're, we're busier down at the pub. We sell more beer out in the market as well. So we, we always have to try and uh, ramp up during that time. But what, 
we've tried to do on the brewery side of things to you know, maybe mitigate some of those labor problems is just always invest in technology so that if there are some of these remedial jobs that are out there that people get super burned out doing, can we have a, a machine doing this thing? Because that person's going to be a lot happier if, you know, all right, I'm going to watch this machine, but then I'm also just going to, you know, do some more problem solving stuff and, and be a little bit more involved and, and learning about the quality side of things as well, as opposed to, hey, your job here is just to fold these boxes and fold, you know, 500 boxes today and 500 boxes tomorrow and just keep that going and be happy. That's not, that's a pretty big challenge, actually. Um, a, a big legislative change that was actually made this year to open up for some more possibilities of getting more labor in um, any of our industries. Um, you'll hear the jargon three-tier system thrown out a lot when you talk about this industry, um, and that simply means there are three tiers involved with alcohol production, um, beer specifically, manufacturing, wholesaling, retailing. At its most basic principle level, it was written in a way that said you cannot cross tiers. You cannot be in one tier and then also have any kind of interest in another. Um, that has changed significantly over time. Many, many changes have, have ebbed and flowed. But one thing that previous to this past year remained was that if you were an employee of one tier, you technically couldn't also be employed by another tier. So we were running into issues. I think everyone can speak to this. You know, we would have um, maybe part-time truck drivers that would like to moonlight bartend somewhere, and that was technically not allowed under the law. And the Alcoholic Beverages Division was getting um, going to start enforcing that strictly. Um, and so a provision was put in place that said um, if you are not in any kind of significant ownership of a tier, um, you can work in more than one. Um, so you can, you know, brew beer and drive a wholesale truck or, you know, work at Hy-Vee and bartend. Um, so I think that's important. You know, I think that there was probably a lot of people probably violating that provision that didn't even realize it. Um, but it's important when we start moving, you know, into this industry and everyone's expanding that you've got to adapt to those kind of, of changes. And I think that's an important change. Can we talk about that tier system? Because I think that's confusing to a lot of people who are just being introduced to it. Um, how was that model, I mean, why was that model introduced and has it, has it been working or are there problems that are being worked through in the industry? I think that it's because of prohibition, the Volstead Act and, the, and uh, uh, back in the 20s when they made for 13 years alcohol mostly illegal. Um, and when they came back out of it, what, what was happening is you'd have a, a Schlitz Tide House, which is still a thing they have in England. And you see, like, on the front of the Royal Mile, we, we say we're a free house. Probably means nothing to most people, but that means that we're free to get whatever product we want from anywhere. But that's like saying, I don't I it's like saying we have air conditioning most places, and I would have that too, which we also have on the front of the window. But uh, But what it meant... What it meant for American businesses is that a Schlitz Brewing Company could go buy a building, uh, find somebody who wants to run that place. All the way down to the silverware could be branded Schlitz. The sign, the building plaques on the, on the outside facade, chairs, bars, the whole thing supplied. The only thing that the operator would have to do is, is sell Schlitz exclusively. Um, and, and there's a lot more to it than that, but I would just say in this particular situation, it's a, it's it's worth noting that was the case fast forward to when they start pulling these parts pulling these things apart and every state has their own laws and makes their own laws and how they want it uh the three-tier system is a way to guard against that influence from the top down to the bottom from the to, and it, it gives places it gives the one barrel brew system place an opportunity in the marketplace that they probably wouldn't get prior to uh these laws coming into place because it's hard it'd be hard in the modern world to do that if if they just dominated, uh, the, the, the brewers would dominate. So the breweries don't have any play in the marketplace. And so in the three-tier system, you have the, you have the suppliers that make the beer. The, the middle tier is the wholesalers that distribute the beer out to the retailers, which is the other tier. And, um, and there's no say from the brewery how it works. And there's a lot of laws in place to make sure that you can't create a situation where you're inducing a sale for your brewery based on the laws. So you can't give something and say, hey, now you got to do that for me. That's illegal. 
uh, in almost all situations, unless it's consumable, unless it's like a uh, like a coaster, something that will go away. Nothing of permanence can be given. Back in the day, you could give brewing equipment or, excuse me, uh, tapping equipment and all those things. And we're still fighting that today. Um, and, and even though the laws are on the books, we're still fighting it today. So you can only imagine what it was like when there weren't those laws, the three, the separation of all three. You can be a, take part in two, but you can't be in all three. I don't know. Somebody yeah, can be more gonna, technical. I was going to quote Captain Jack Sparrow and say, more guidelines than rules, actually. The three-tier <laughs> system is a thing that we've heard of, but it's not like a strict thing. Um, most states from from the end of prohibition to the present really only had sort of technically two. There's a little bit of caveats here and there. So it's never been, and the places where it is really strict, uh, Mississippi, for example, you know, they got probably, I don't know how many breweries they have, but it's at more than ha half as many as we have here today. Um, the places where there are a stricter three-tier system, the it's a much less uh, mature market. So one of those, like that 2010 law change was really helpful in Iowa and there are other places that are far behind our laws. So, so, so that I understand too, and I think I'm understanding this right too, if, uh, if I'm exile, I brew my beer, I then sell it, I, I have to send it through the distributor, right? That's correct. Right. Yeah. And then you, no, then I'll, you're essentially. I'll always, unless right. it's sold on draft at the pub. Got it. So we are so the way that we got into business, so my dad owns a restaurant on the east side of town, Tercy's Latin King. So we had a, I believe it's a class A liquor license over there. And if you are going to be manufacturing beer, you cannot, with like your native beer permit, you can't also have a class A liquor license. So we got a special class A uh, permit, which allows a brew pub privilege. So we are technically a brew pub down at exile and as a brew pub you cannot self-distribute because then you're hitting these other class a licenses you're permeating the the three-tier system so we sell unless we're selling it on draft uh at the tap room or in a growler uh, everything is going through the distributor so all the beer that goes out to other bars and restaurants it goes through the distributor even bottles that we sell at exile we sell to the distributor, buy back from the distributor, and then sell at Exile. And then from the distributor side, the reason why that would be important. Sure. Um, I'm going to step in quick and, and uh, clarify but expand. So there are actually two different kinds of licenses you can get in Iowa to manufacture beer. Please step in if I get this wrong because um, I'm still kind of becoming an expert on it. But you can be a brew pub, um, just as he described, which you're actually a retailer. So you actually have a retail license with a brewing privilege, which is why as a retail account, they must buy their beer even through a wholesaler because that's how every other retailer would have to do it. Or you can be a brewery, which is what Confluence is, Class A native brewery, um, and you have the right to self-distribute then at that point as well. But the caveat is you can only have one on-premise location for the sell of your beer. You can have one tap room. Um, and so those are kind of the two different lanes you can operate in. Um, so in one lane, you have the option to go through a wholesale distributor. You can then have more than one location in the state. Or you can choose to self-distribute your own beer. You have one location in the state. Did I do okay? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It is complicated. It is complicated. Yeah. And that's ultimately to protect, uh, let's say, Confluence gets, gets so big that they were doing their own self-distribution, and then they were trying to open up multiple retail locations. They could own all the bar breweries in Des Moines, right? I mean, that would be the... The, the theory. The, 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 I'm never the going theory, to put right. any kind of blame on or right. you know, projection on anyone. <laughs> sure. No, that would be, um, yeah, to stop us from having these tight houses, I suppose. And, you know, I think capitalism would stop that right. in its tracks, but the state, you know, put regulations in place. And we enjoy the privilege of having one retail license and also distributing. Um, you could argue that maybe we could make more money if we had multiple tap rooms instead of self-distribution uh, because tap rooms are definitely more profitable than, than distributing beer. But, um, you know, for now, this is working for us and we've chosen that path. So we'll continue down it. And, and I would just uh, throw out just a, an, uh, talk about opportunities uh, I was I had the opportunity, although they I would have worked with RJ and not with uh, John because of how they decided to set their license um, to become investors in their breweries, owning a Class A license myself at all of our places, uh, which ultimately after about six to eight times I've looked at people's prospectuses, uh, I'm full disclosure I'm a, a part owner 
an investor in my hometown brewery in Carroll Brewing. But that wouldn't have come to, that wouldn't have happened if uh, if we wouldn't have gone with the brew pub. So there's, but it is, it's, sometimes it makes no sense. Like, I was like, I can be an owner. I was like, I want to be an owner. That's great. But sometimes it doesn't make exact sense. But basically, at the end of the day, it's basically to protect uh, each one of the tiers' uh, opportunities to thrive uh, in in the marketplace. And there's always a give and take and a battle between those things. And, and, uh, and it probably always will be. But uh, for the most part, it seems to work so fine now. We're at about an hour here, but I want to give you guys a chance. Um, if there's anything we haven't talked about here, just any points that you would like people to be aware of, um, I just want to give you a, a, a chance to open the floor for comment here. I would just say that, you know, we as craft brewers in Iowa and you know, you heard it, most of us, almost all of us do not distribute outside of the state of Iowa. So we fully depend on Iowans drinking craft beer. So anybody who's listening to this that drinks craft beer, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And if you don't drink craft beer, give it a try and uh, give it multiple tries and find out which ones you like and just start exploring it. Because if you don't and you're just you're kind of uh, stuck on what you've always drank. You're really missing a big world that's out there that is uh, pretty exciting and, and has a lot of great things to offer. Is anybody buying, uh, anybody, any Iowa breweries been looked at by some of the large um, brewery? I know Anheuser-Busch has been going around buying up a lot of the craft breweries. I know that opens up a discussion that would be much longer than we have right now. Um, but just curious if there have been any Iowa breweries that have been purchased. Not to my knowledge. I don't think any Iowa breweries have been purchased. I don't know if any offers have been made. Um, you occasionally get someone calling, yeah, like wanting to buy a business. I don't know that, um, you know, anybody's being approached by Anheuser-Busch or Miller Coors. And I also think that trend uh, has bared out to not be as fruitful as they thought. Um, I think there's going to be a, a little bit of a – I think you'll see fellow breweries buy each other out on the like-for-like – but uh, or working in some fashion where they, I think, Southern Tier and uh, and um, Victory. Victory paired up to to stuff. But I see that going happening more when you see these larger uh, buyouts. I don't know if they really got what they wanted outside of Goose Island did well. But uh, I would say, uh, for final thing for me to say is that that uh, I'm a native Iowan. Um, I take great pride in my state and whatever fashion, uh, uh, us looking good to the world takes, I'm all behind it a hundred percent. And, uh, and I'm happy to say that craft beer has, uh, been a big part of what I do. I was just going to add, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, retail locations are opening, probably pulled in by the success of the industry and I mentioned a little bit of the agricultural opportunity but there's also you know I mean there's a lot of jobs created from this industry not just in the breweries themselves but in some of the retail locations um, it's uh, refurbishing neighborhoods whether it's in a large city where you know RJ your neck of the woods is really beautiful because you're there right you're you fixed everything right but it's big cities. Pretty much. <laughs> but it's it's big cities and small towns alike. There's a huge like beer tourism is a thing. Um, people go will go. You know, people are going to drive to Carroll on purpose to taste those beers and check out that really cool. Good job, guys. Um, really cool uh, taproom area. So like, people go all over the state to explore. And so there's a great tourism piece to the puzzle and jobs and main streets and small communities. And that's a really beautiful thing. So it's more than just like you know bunch of people sitting around drinking beer we do that too but it's really good in a lot of different ways and I'll jump off that you know sitting around drinking beer um the beer industry is thriving I think that's something important to talk about across all categories you know we see that in our warehouses um I think there's sometimes some rhetoric thrown around um that it's not doing well you know liquor and wine is just kicking its butt and you know no one's drinking beer anymore and you just don't see that you know it may not always be the flashiest thing to talk about um but 
everyone around here at this table cares a great deal about making sure Iowans are consuming responsibly um, and also that they're consuming good products. Um, and so the beer industry, is it's a great place to be. Um, we do a lot of good for economic development. We employ a lot of people. We pay a lot of taxes. Um, and so all of that is just a really positive thing. Um, and it's I think we can all agree it's a really great industry to be in. Are you two, uh, uh, Confluence and XL, you guys pretty bullish about your businesses? Uh, we embarked on a, an expansion in 2016, and it, it went, uh, I guess I considered it for quite a while before we did that. It, you know, we invested more than double what we had originally invested in, the, in opening the brewery, and it was a big decision, but I'm, I'm so glad we did it. Um, we're set up to, uh, you know, to meet our needs for the next couple years. Is there more capacity out there for us? Maybe um, the consumers will tell us that. And, you know, we appreciate all the love that's out there for craft beer and, and our beer in particular. And thank everyone for trying it and uh, supporting us. But, yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm not necessarily bullish, but um, optimistic and, and we're ready. Yeah, I would just I would just echo that. There was there was a time when when we initially opened where, as we started seeing our growth rates, maybe we had some some ideas about how fast we were going to be able to get to where we wanted to go. And we've come down a little bit on that, but we still know that that's where we want to go. It's just going to take us a little bit longer. And, you know, we're going to be taking taking some smaller steps to get there. But we're always reinvesting uh, at Exile. And the reason we're doing that is because we believe in, in what we're doing and believe that we have a, a bright future. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. Um, we appreciate your time and your insight and uh, look forward to drinking more beer this summer. <laughs> for sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And don't forget to pick up a copy of our Business of Beer cover story in the business record out May 31st. Or check out the story online, subscribe to our e-newsletters, and become a supporting member at www.businessrecord.com. Cheers. <laughs>